Hello everyone and welcome back to the Great Women Artists podcast. Last week's episode looked at the incredible life of the street photographer Vivian Meyer and today we speak to the American artist Sarah Z, who through sculpture, installation and painting helps us understand how we experience images in the 21st century. She's just opened a marvel of an exhibition at the Guggenheim and also features in my book The Story of Art Without Men which is out in the UK and Europe and will be published on the 2nd of May in the US. So pre-order your copy now. But I am delighted to say that this series is sponsored by Ocular, a premium gallery platform, magazine and advisory business. Ocular represents the best of contemporary art. Ocular.com provides collectors, art world professionals and art enthusiasts with online access to exceptional artwork and compelling articles on artists and the art world. Working with a very select group of the world's leading galleries, you can also use Ocular.com to search for information on and follow incredible artists like Sarah Z. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from the Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I'm so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is one of the most renowned artists working today, Sarah Z. Working across sculpture, painting, drawing, printmaking, video and installation, and the culmination of all of them, Z's creations often take the form of a planetarium, a coliseum, a work-in-progress laboratory, often held up by precarious stick-like structures and formed around everyday objects, and more recently, moving images, her works behave for me, as the greatest visual microcosm for the information and images inundating today's fast-moving, internet-filled world. In dialogue with art historical predecessors who worked with the ready-made at the start of the 20th century, as well as challenging traditions and genres, such as the still life, Z borrows from everyday materials. These include wire, congealed paint, tape measures, scissors, ladders, newspapers and more, as well as images and films taken on her iPhone as if to give prominence to the mundane mass-produced objects and moments in life. Born in Boston, Z earned a BA from Yale University and an MFA from the School of Visual Arts. Already when she was in graduate school, an exhibition at MoMA PS1 saw her transform the, both the museum and sculpture itself. This quickly progressed to Z working with projections and objects, from plastic water bottles to razor blades, Q-tips and ladders, and work on an immersive scale that activates the viewer to be part of the time-based work, as well as challenging the notions that everything in her artwork is actually what is used to require to make the piece itself. In 2003, she was awarded a MacArthur Fellowship. In 2012, she took over New York's High Line. In 2013, she represented the US at the Venice Biennale. 
In 2017, her permanent mural, Blueprint for a Landscape, opened at the 96th Street Station of the 2nd Avenue subway. Last month, she opened a monumental exhibition titled Time Lapse at the Guggenheim and next month will transform a disused Victorian waiting room in Peckham Rye Station in London into an installation commissioned by Art Angel. Sarah Z, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Oh, very good. Thank you so much for that generous introduction. So I have been such a huge fan of your work for a long time. Your exhibition at Victoria Miro in 2012 was actually the first ever exhibition I worked on being at the front desk. And I've seen countless shows of yours since, including your most recent and transfixing exhibition at the Guggenheim. Whenever I am confronted by your work, I am in awe because I have never before witnessed work that visualises what we are experiencing so acutely in the 21st century with the proliferation of images and information. I'm thinking specifically about your work, Centrifuge, from 2017, which is essentially a manifestation of a desk with everyday objects, with hundreds of projections of moving images. It is set up like a laboratory, and it's like entering a different ecosystem. And I love entering your work both up close and far away. So I want to start by asking you, how do you hope for people to feel in front of your work? Interesting. So I don't think in work that way of how you should feel. I think that for me, an installation or any artwork is really an experiment. And it's an experiment in a conversation with the audience. So for me right now, it's very interesting to have just put up a show at the Guggenheim and done all of these things that we had no idea, the museum had no idea how people would interact. And it's just, it's always this um, profound pleasure when you see an audience come and they make the work live by their presence. And one of the things I really wanted to do there was, you know, you can easily have a kind of drive-by experience at the Guggenheim and always be looking right when you're going up and left when you're going down and stay in movement. I really wanted to draw you into those bays. That building is, I think, probably one of the most radical buildings ever built, and even still. Um, and each of those bays is entirely unique. They all have a different measurement, all have a different slope. It's incredibly idiosyncratic. So I wanted to make this journey through that museum be one of each bay having a different way of moving, of discovering, of revealing the work within that architecture. So for example, Slice is a piece where you're brought in behind a piece. So you, you actually come to the work from behind. Often I've developed a recent vocabulary of having this uh, surface that's put together by your eyes. There's really nothing round in like in LaGuardia, for example, or in Slice that's in the show, but your eye put pieces together, these flat pieces of paper with objects or images on them often and creates this very, very delicate sense of an orb, right? You were talking about the planetarium. There's actually no round object in it. It's just that your eye is creating that, that roundness. They're all separate pieces of paper that are held you know, in space. The first ones were made out of basketballs that where I put the objects right up against and then remove the basketball. So what you're really looking at, that shape that you're sculpting, you know, and I guess in that way, when you say, how do you want the conversation with the viewer to be? I want it to be active. I want the viewer to be putting the piece together themselves in space. So, you know, we're naming them as planetariums, but actually none of them have circles in them. It's actually the removal of a circle and these very, very slight fragments, really this idea of a kind of debris barely holding on that the viewer is sculpting in space themselves and that they're images so in slice you're seeing images that are lit from behind and you're in daylight so this idea that images have been set 
free from their frame, that they're being traded and changed and used like objects. Um, and so to collect them together and create narratives of these disparate images, we're doing that, I think, every day. We are the number of images in my lifetime that I am using as communication, that I'm using to figure out what it is to be, to navigate the world around me is just every day becoming more and more dense, more and more complex. Absolutely. And also just extraordinary to be in that space, which is so circular and for your eye to be really challenged by that, especially with New York, which is so rectangular as well, this sort of like city that's built on boxes upon boxes. And I love the fact that it's beside things caused to happen, which is this much smaller work. And also then you, when you enter Timekeeper, it's like entering this totally other dimension. And I remember reading Zadie Smith's fantastic essay on yours a few years ago. And I loved how when she spoke about going into your studio with her kids, the kids said it looked like a sort of exploded iPhone, which I kind of love for so many reasons. One being the fact that you could immediately recognize this viscerality of what it could be like. I mean, what atmosphere do you want to create in your work when we enter into these installations in a work such as Timekeeper? Well, I mean, it's, it was a very specific decision to put Things Caused to Happen as the last piece that you're seeing daylight till you go into um, this dark room because Things Caused to Happen, just for the, the listener, is scaled so that that could actually become almost like a helmet over your head. And so you, you really put your head up to it and it feels like that's, you know, all sculpture is, you know, figurative in my mind. They're very landscape-like, but they're all about where's this hitting you? Is it hitting you at your waist? Is it hitting you at your head? How are you physically approaching it? So you really physically approach it at your head and you go into it at that scale and you're in broad daylight. And then you move from that piece into a tiny, tiny tunnel-like transitional space. It's a hall. But this was something that Frank Lloyd Wright did a lot is he would squeeze the audience down into a very, very dark, small space, and then he would let them out into a very bright space. So I really wanted to play on that. So what he does there, it's almost like a hidden um, trail. And I have this uh, video projection of just, it's just a puddle in the New York streets at night that's then cast at a kind of, at an angle. And I'm, and I'm, I'm using video in sculptural ways and painterly ways, really playing with each medium in ways that we think normally would be, you know, we normally wouldn't think of a video as being thrown like paint, but so it's thrown like paint down that floor. And then you find yourself, which is also this interesting for me idea that you're not presented artwork. You're not told where to go. You don't, pull back a curtain and you enter an installation, you find yourself in the installation. Um, and that spill between entering into um, the last installation in the show, which completely surrounds you, is one where you don't realize that you're in it till you're there. There's no sort of, you know, that's completely blurred in time and space as to when this completely immersive installation happens. Um, and in that space, you the walls of the architecture actually, they become, it colonizes the, the space. And so the architecture disappears and the images, the whole architecture becomes a screen and the images themselves take over. And they speed up along when they're close to the videos and they slow down when they're far away. So they're actually caressing and cascading through the architecture in a sculptural way. They get larger as they're thrown farther away. So they're actually in a direct conversation because they're in movement. Um, and you as a viewer are constantly, there's no place in that room where you're not part of the installation, where you're not being hit by a video and being cast into the space. So this idea of watching a video where 
you know, there's a front and a back or a screen or a place you should be standing is hopefully completely broken apart. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's like you, you give us a sort of macro and micro viewpoint of the world. It's so extraordinary and kind of using architecture like this paintbrush as well. And I mean, I'm not from Manhattan, but I've been here for the last few months. And even just looking at Manhattan from far away and being inside Manhattan is such an extraordinary experience. And the fact that we're sort of surrounded with this sort of the artificial towering buildings, concrete highways, satellites, phones that we use every day. I mean, is it a sort of attempt to translate the world around us into a visual record? I mean, I think every artist is doing that, right? Every artist is taking that from their time. I think this very radical scale shift, I actually stole that. It's used a lot in Chinese painting where you have a tiny, tiny person, farmer with their, like very mundane. It's also giving the viewer this like, you know, not telling them that this has to happen, but to show this like movement that we, I think we have all the time every day in our lives between the mundane and the profound and the spectacular. And that was in the Chinese landscape. You have this tiny, tiny, very mundane event, like the milk person or bringing their firewood. And then this unbelievable mountainscape and nothing in between. I love that idea of things where it shifts from your hand to the edge of a sunset. You know, it's like when you stand at the edge of water, and you see the reflection of the sun going down from the water come right to your toes. And you have this unbelievable shift in scale. And that's something also in the Guggenheim. You know, how do you take on the most incredible void created in recent time in architecture and talk to it in the slightest way? So to use this one plumb bob from the ceiling to measure that space is also this idea of taking something so, so mundane to remind us of how sublime that space is. And you're spending time in Manhattan. like You would never build a building in Manhattan, I think right now, where the percentage of it that is void is that high. It's actually just logistics, practicality. It's really a building that frames a void. Yeah, I think it's extraordinary. Also, just the fact that you're culminating so many mediums and reworking traditional art forms, you know, sculpture, painting, architecture, the ready-made, but also still life, you know, portraiture, to an extent, landscape, everything. I mean, first of all, I'd love to ask, what is it that is about this sort of effect of culmination of objects and ideas in your work? Well, I mean, I think that goes a little bit back to your question before. I mean, I started as a painter, so it makes sense. But when I made sculpture, people would say, there's so much color in your sculpture. And I would think, but there's so much color in the world. You know, like, why is sculpture suddenly, you know, dull or gray or, you know, and so I think it is a kind of, you know, it's Andy Warhol talked about being a conduit for the world around him. And, you know, I said that to my students when we were in COVID and they said, this is so hard to make work. And I thought, this is your conduit for this time. The work you make during COVID will be a historical document of what it was to be alive in that moment. It's so important for you to get up every day and make some kind of artwork out of whatever is around you. Because as an artist, this is this amazing document that we're leaving to time that hopefully time will take care of in some one way or another to reflect on what it is to be alive in any moment. Absolutely. But also what I find so fascinating about your life generally or my, my life, you know, the fact that you were born in 1969 and you're working in, you know, 2023. And just what I find fascinating, this might be a strange observation, but just the fact that your career sort of began with the sort of culmination of the 21st century as well, which was also this kind of, I mean, I was born in the 90s, so I don't really know as much, but what I can imagine, it's like this build up and, and this kind of 
explosion of sort of technological advances and everything. And now we're kind of weirdly in this kind of aftermath of the sort of year 2000. And I wonder how, if starting your career in the 90s actually had an effect on what you were looking at because of this kind of explosion of so many different ideas. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think Zadie's article or her essay is really interesting that way because she's a little younger than me, but we're sort of the same generation. And this idea that we were at this cusp where we could see the tornado approaching and we could see us entering it. Whereas like right after that, you were already at the middle. And if you go further back, we became fluent in it quite quickly. Um, but, you know, this show is also about that because there's a piece from 19, I think 1997 that starts with it's hidden in a closet. And, you know, I think it was an important idea that there was something that you know maybe no one would see. And when you see it, you know, I'm one of 100 people who saw this piece. And it brings up, the, it accentuates the idea of serendipity, of something happening in the moment, of the fragility of an intersection in time. Uh, and so there's one piece from the 1990s, and it has the inter- integration of videos with objects. And it, I was doing that in the 90s, but I was going to my friend who worked at Sony in Times Square, because my studio is near the Holland Tunnel. I was walking over there, and we were working with massive machines, Betamax, and he moved to LA and couldn't work with him on it on, on video anymore because you didn't have a massive facility, you couldn't do it. And so over the time of the show, the growth of the image, the ability to use it, the fact that we're all now photographers, you know, between the 90s, that piece 1997, and it's sort of bookmarked by this other piece, Timekeeper, which is 2015, the growth of the image, the merging of the image with the object, the collection of images, the use of them um, to do really fundamental, really important things like meet the person you'll spend the rest of your life with, communicate with your children, reproduce. It's operative in this way that has just grown through my lifetime. And so the show is a lot about that too. It's about this kind of journey from seeing this early work and then moving through and really experiencing each bay as a chapter in a way that you could merge the analog and the digital. And also to really think about the fact that the digital, when we know this more and more, is physical. It falls apart. It breaks. I'm looking at light. You know, it looks different on one screen to the next. It's, you know, so the the, the show itself does that a lot. Like at the last bay, all of the images in this river of images that exists in the Guggenheim is passed like a baton um, between each um, video camera so that it can be bright enough to because you see images in broad daylight, we can do this. We have the power of the machines, but we can just have multiple machines and the computers can be passing them, but they all crash at the end and they all turn into digital dust. And to remind you all the time that you're looking at digital pixels, you're looking at paper, the paper's all torn. You're looking at wood, so you know the wood would be broken. So the, the texture that we miss from the digital, I think the texturality of it, often. I do think the digital also really leaves us with the longing, the longing for the texture, but that texture is always in conversation. There's always a confusion. Is this digital? Is it analog? That's always one of the things you're teetering in as a viewer in the work, this idea of being kind of off balance, which is also the perfect setting, obviously, because you're always in contraposto standing in a Guggenheim, whether you know it or not. Totally. I mean, it's so fascinating, also the kind of sensory experience of it all as well. And the fact that, you know, without realising, we don't know that all these images and analogue, digital, the physicality, everything is constantly surrounded by us. At the weekend, I went to go and see a play about Philip Glass, and he described music as being like a river. You know, it's constantly surrounding us. And actually, your work sort of really speaks to that, because actually it is constantly, we're kind of swimming through it the whole time. And we don't realise that what we are experiencing the whole time is music 
images, everything. That's amazing. You know, this thing that I figured out while the museum was closed over COVID is called the River of Images. And outside of the building too, it's a river, we call it the river, it's titled the River of Images. And it's the same idea that we're just in this ongoing flow of a river of images. So that's really beautiful. I have to see it. Oh, it's absolutely beautiful because his work as well is sort of like being on a cloud. Sure, it's so course. sequential as well. And I, I love it. <laughs> But I mean, I'm fascinated with your upbringing. I mean, the fact that you were born in 1969, your father was an architect and your mother was a preschool teacher. You grew up in a house full of models and plans and that you were always making things as well. I mean, tell us about that interest in images in the 70s and 80s, because obviously it has progressed so much since. It's interesting, you know, one of the things which has come back there. So, of course, these things circle around, right? You know, I love posters, you know, we grew up with posters. Like I grew up with, you know, important artworks on my wall, but they were all posters. Mm. And I think that kind of went away and I think it's coming back now. But that was the trade of image there. Postcards or game cards, this kind of collecting of images was done in a much more analog, like stamp collecting. Remember how important, and you don't remember this, but stamps <laughs> were very important. A lot of major collectors who are older said they started with stamps. You know, yeah, and baseball cards, Star Wars cards. It was huge. We had this really crappy bubble gum that would come out when you just get it, you just chew it, you know, for two seconds before it became cardboard just to get the card. But it's interesting how I think that's coming back. And I think people's, you know, people's understanding, I do think the print, collage, and I think that is a kind of backbone to many mediums is actually stayed and appeared in different ways. I went to the Vatican. I was really lucky. I got a tour of the plates that the Vatican owns underneath. They have this unbelievable facility that I think anyone could go to if they sign up for, where there was a Pope who decided that he wanted to own all of the printing plates because he understood that owning the plate would mean owning the trade of images. And Piranesi was making prints of the Colosseum for French tourists. They were sold like you would buy a Lonely Planet guide. And, you know, um, you go there and you pull out and it's all of these unbelievable copper plates of Piranese, of, of Mirandi. It's like printing money, right? He knew that it was that this trade of images, that owning the plate would be owning this kind of image. It's like, and it's like Getty images now. It's like 90% of the images are found like very, very casually. I learned a lot from Fishley and Vice about that. Just sort of like this incident, sort of the stupid video. And I think because we are experiencing so much on the screen, We've become obsessed with like, you know, cooking shows, making slime, like cutting Play-Doh or ASMR, these kinds of things that like the digital interpreting physical things um, has become a kind of new obsession. Um, and Fishley and Vice were thinking about that, I think, early on. You know, they were filming dumb things in their studios and showing how spectacular they were. But then if I want to, you know, juxtapose that with a volcano, I can just buy one. So people will say, how did you get that video of the volcano? But of course we know, like you can get there. They like objects can be bought in a second for very little or a lot. And so this trade of the image, like the object and the confusion, I think is very, very interesting and very relevant. And it affects the way, you know, we, we interact. I don't know. I, I don't know the answer, but it's something that we should all be thinking about very closely. You know, it's like my students will say, I really wanted red yarn and this isn't red. And it was red. I, when I bought it, it was red. I said, how do you buy it? They said, I saw it on the screen and it was red. And then I said, but well, actually the screen is, you know, so they're starting with color as being the real color being the screen color. And then this shock of it not being in real life, what it is on the screen. So we've reversed that often. 
I think also what's so fascinating is also how we kind of consume art history as well, you know, through our phones, through the screens, et cetera. And the fact that the first time ever in history, we have access to, you know, Google, we could look up 10,000, 20,000 years worth of art in one place. Absolutely. And I mean, what's extraordinary about your work as well, obviously I see Duchamp, but I see the Baroque as well. I mean, I'd love to know about sort of the references to art history and actually the fact that we can access all these images in one place. Yeah. Even the fact that we can do that is what also creates this confusion you can't remember uh, did I actually see Las Meninas in person or am I having seen it so many times on the screen you can't remember I mean much less like a contemporary art show you want to see 10 this week and you can't remember if you saw it or not because you've already searched it and been like do I want to go to the show and you've already gone through the images so that confusion I think is really interesting to answer your question you know the broke was doing that and, and what I love about it is also this idea of the speed of it that much of it was an off balance, sped up, it was frozen in time that created these, you know, teetering. Like if you think of Las Minas, the tipping of every frame in there from the back of the canvas to the mirror to the back to the the stairway coming down as it's flipping it's like almost like flipping cards back diagonally through that composition it's so radically lyrical taking a structure and then really imitating how idiosyncratic how random how meandering um uh, you know our sense of time and place is and i think that during the pandemic because of the isolation that at least most of the world had to some degree, our sense of time changed because of, and there are neuroscientists who study this in depth, and I'm just saying it anecdotally, but one of the ways we mark time is when something happens serendipitously. Like, you know, if I run into you at the Guggenheim, like I did, I remember what you were wearing. I remember which gecko we were standing in front of. I remember talking to you. Whereas like when you were at the desk, I would see you every day. I expected to see you. Like, I don't remember what you were wearing. That regular and so our lives became so much more control. It was so much less chance. And I think that when things happen in a chance way, when discovery is made, that's when time is marked. And so that is, is, you know, to your original question too, about what I love myself about the experience of art is this sense of this moment of discovery when I'm seeing a work of art. Um, and actually, that can happen a year after you see a work of art. You know, people say, oh, I didn't like this show. And you don't always know how good a work of art is until you see it and you remember it in retrospect. But I am interested in the experience of my work, in whether it's in a museum, whether it's in a public space, whether it's in a gallery, to be one of discovery, of thinking I didn't know this could be done this way. And particularly for younger artists and for talking to other artists, it was sort of halfway through the Guggenheim, I thought someone said, this is going to be such a success. And I thought, like, what is a success that just kind of is in the middle when you're trying to figure out, like, what am I doing? And I thought, no, this was helpful because success means nothing in this context of being in the middle of a show. And I sort of reframed it and thought, I want to make a show where younger artists come and say, this is an invitation. I'm like saying, okay, I did this. I did something that you didn't think you could do in a museum. And now you take that ball and run. Like to create an opening for other artists to say where they might say, I didn't know you could do that in a museum. Like that to me is is what's interesting. And for me, when I go see another work of art and I think, wow, I didn't know I could do that. I didn't know that could happen. And that moment of discovery, I think, for the artist can translate to the viewer. And I think all of us who are addicted to seeing and making art, it's really that. And when people say, oh, are you happy? Are you excited about the opening? You know, for me, that excitement is always those moments where 
I'm installing or painting. And I, I realized like the painting just told me to do something I never knew was going to happen. I mean, so deep in the process that I just did something and, or the paintings it, like said, it needs this thing. And I reacted and it's that live moment where something changes in a way you could never have expected that really speaks to the thrill of being live. And I think the strange thing about art is when you see a piece, you see that. Like when you look at a Philip Guston, you know he could never have known that that was going to happen. The Baroque really plays on that. Like they try and make that central. They want you to be that this element of surprise, of tripping and catching yourself really becomes a central idea in the Baroque, like a Caravaggio thing where, you know, it's this moment where the light hit the card and the player, this kind of tumbling of narrative that happens from a moment. The whole composition is one of tripping and catching. So I do love that about the Baroque. And also just the idea of sort of entering this church as well, and that would be the whole experience and the sort of narrative playing out. But yes, I mean, it, it is all about that kind of experience as well, which I'm also so fascinated with this sort of culmination of architecture and painting and sculpture and everything. I mean, interestingly, your degree at Yale was both painting and architecture. I mean, what is it about pursuing both of these and how do you think one informs another? Well, it's interesting that we're jumping from that, from the Baroque. I mean, the Renaissance and the Baroque, everyone was doing painting, sculpture, architecture. That was like Bernini, Michelangelo. That was sort of par for the course. I mean, I love to look at each of those mediums, confuse them, uh, think about what does one normally do very well that another one doesn't, and try and, and see where those boundaries blur into each other. So to take something like gravity and put it into a painting, to take something like, you know, the heat of color to play with, let's say, like value and color and put it into a sculpture. You know, every bay at the Guggenheim I thought of as an image maker. This is very helpful for me too when I would go, because, you know, sometimes in the middle of a work, you're, you have to remember what's the central thread here because at any point you can make 20 different decisions and you sometimes you have to say okay there's no right decision or wrong decision in the creative process so you have to kind of go back and say well what's the guiding principle here why why, why were these decisions made in the beginning and I realized that each bay was really an image maker how would you get sculpture painting video installation sound in concert trying to produce images and there's this one bay where it's actually a totally new painting. I switched it in. There's only one bay out of six that actually is what I had planned it to be. Every other bay is different. It changed radically every day. And I think that liveness is also what's part of the show, which is also a really beautiful pairing with Gego because Gego, you have her spirit. And when you see the work, you're reading it as the narrative of someone who's passed. And so it was sort of interesting to be live. And I mean, I think most artists, I, I think, I don't know, I'm always thinking about when I'm dead. <laughs> and I always think I'm going to knock on wood, get hit by a truck tomorrow. And I'm always thinking about the life of the work over time. And I'm interested in when you come to an artwork thinking, oh, you know, if this were worked on for another hour, how would it change? I'm interested in the viewer coming and feeling like it is a live moment when they get to the work itself. And so... This was an interesting in the moment idea of let's make this an image maker. And there was one bay where I was trying to figure out what, like what's going on. I don't understand. I need to figure this out. I have to focus this. There are too many, too many trails and I have to choose one. And I brought in this painting that was totally not supposed to be in the show. Um, and it had this image um, that had been actually turned upside down of a sunset in it. And no one else knew it, but it, the image was a still from a video. 
So I was like, it's a still from a video. And everyone was like, no, it's not a still from a video. I was like, no, it is. It is. It's on my iPhone. We got this. So we've got the still from the video. And it's just that real, you know, that moment where you're waiting, waiting, waiting for the sunset. And then all of a sudden, boom, it just disappears. Right. And so it was a still in the middle of the painting. And then there's a, there was a piece that had water in it. So I took a fan and had the fan like moving and pull. It's a, an oscillating fan. It's pulling a very light um, video camera. And then I, the cast the video and put it on a loop of the sun setting and rising and setting and rising and then there's a string that goes right back to the painting of that so you see a printout of the still that's then been painted so that's also interesting about baroque because you wrote you Ted said to me you're interested in the baroque before this and I was thinking about it you know the idea of trompe l'oeil mm. of like actually because there's a lot of trompe l'oeil in it and like you know another artist was was um, challenging me and saying like why are you using the trompe l'oeil this is so you know retrograde or whatever but this idea of having you know the literal translation of fooling the eye art is always fooling the eye there's a lot of like card trips magic tricks in it too it's like this idea that we're engaging in a, in a trickery when you're looking at artwork all the time hands and the card tricks always remind me of nauman which i like that reference too I and mean, you were talking about references i think references often you don't realize till you see the work it in the work. And I thought, oh, now man. And then you decide whether you like that reference or not. I like, great, this is a great reference. Um, but the point is that bay became a really interesting image maker. So because the image is being made in video, it's being made in photography, it's being made in paint, and you see them all merging in front of your eyes and you're spending time trying to separate and pull them together to marry them, and but also to categorize them. And that's, I think... A place we find ourselves in and is really marks our time in what it is to be alive right now. Totally, totally. But I think what's so extraordinary as well is that I've experienced so many of your exhibitions. And I remember, I think it was about 2019 or 2020, where you had the exhibition of paintings at Miro and seeing those paintings for the very first time as well. Because, I mean, before, like you say, you use paint, but it's almost like congealed. It's almost used in a kind of sculptural way. And it's funny you referenced the bubblegum thing earlier, because I often sort of see kind of this idea of bubblegum or some kind of, there's something sort of visceral about that when your painting works. But I mean, you know, the fact that you do have this work, such as images that images forget or you've got that extraordinary work called time zero and, and and I think because I've seen so many of your, your exhibitions over time it was like when they sort of became these flat works it was like this sort of culmination of all these ecosystems was suddenly just put on a flat form I mean they're not flat because again you see so many different elements and they are collage and everything but I mean how did you kind of get from creating these sort of planetarium like works and sort of suddenly concentrating them all onto these flat works well, so I have two answers to that. One, that the important thing about that mirror show was, you know, for me was, you know, we're seeing so many images flat. So I wanted to be like, what is it to see it live? So what in that show there, which you could never reproduce in images, no. they're twin images. And I wanted you to stand in between and you were like the sandwich between them. And you could never see, you'd always be looking at one to the other. And they were different stages in the work. I'm really interested in this idea of the generative of that, you know, every artist has this. They generate work from their work. Like what I'm interested in now in the Guggenheim going into Art Angel is what's the trail from the Guggenheim? What's the opening? Really continuing to make artwork is always about resilience, right? So one of the other very interesting points is after a show, which can be very hard, but is to look at the work and say, where's the opening? And the opening is often the unresolved part of the work. And sometimes you don't realize that until later. What's the opening to go forward into the next thing? So that show is very much about the generative 
And the paintings to me also are about how an idea generates. So you see images generating themselves or destroying themselves, as you said, in Time Zero, but at the same time, which also is, is fundamental to all of the mediums, that you see the material in a suspended state of either becoming or dying of entropy or growth. And so for me, I started as a painter. I painted like crazy when I was very young, weirdly oil painting. I had a, like a very wonderful, idiosyncratic, quirky um, painting teacher when I was in grade school. And we would go to this beautiful um, graveyard next door to the school and we would paint landscape in oil. She always wanted to do oil. And so like we did oil painting when I was very young and I I fell in love with it. Um, And so I did painting. I was an oil painter undergrad. I went to graduate school as an oil painter. I started there as a painter. And I really felt like when I got there that I was always thinking about like, you know, painting and what it was to paint and was it a good painting? And I I had really lost... um, a sense of why I was doing what I was could do other than like I can paint well so you know going into sculpture I think I brought all of these loves of painting the improvisation the you know the the live because in a painting every mark changes every other color in, in the painting the fragility of ruining a painting you know you can really ruin a painting so often like that's so true <laughs> unless you do and yeah unless you're doing like Carrara marble like a lot of the time with a sculptor you can fix it actually, unless you're using one piece of wood to build a sculpture. So, no, but in this day and age, a lot of the sculpture that's being made, you can make it and then say, I'm going to make it again. But with a painting, you can really destroy it. So I think, I mean, certainly I'm talking about painting also within a type frame, painting the minute there's one piece of paint on it, it doesn't matter. You can call it a painting or even not have painting on it. It's printed out, call it a painting. Because what's interesting is that definition brings up questions. Why is it a painting? Why is it art? Those are really interesting questions. If you go into a show and you come out and you say, I don't think that was art, that's a good question to have. So to me, those definitions are only interesting in that they make us take steps forward. They make us make new challenging work. You know, that idea of being challenged is so important within artwork. Totally. And also, especially with your work, with the sort of culmination of the studio within these four frames. I mean, that's also right. like, like, how do you find that kind of restriction as well? Because I mean, so much of the time, what I love about your sculpture is that it's almost dissolved every single framing device. Right. It's like right. it leaves you behind. Right. Well, so one of the things that I think is important, I think we are like living in a kind of, it's it's a, it's a kind of small-minded, belly-gazing idea to like separate these mediums so much. Yeah, I know. So to me, I like, like as I said, I like to do to play on um, what are the strengths or what are the weaknesses, and how do you plan this? So to me, uh, you know, a sculpture is amazing in that you know you can walk around it, you can break it if you want to, you can know what it is if you want. I mean, a painting is, you know, it doesn't always tell you what it is. But what's interesting to me for my paintings is I'm thinking about um, what I think is you know, a part of what's the visual world that I think we've neglected. We've actually started maybe, you know, I know this is, I'm just, this is where I'm at thinking about is I think that we're so overlaid with the visual that we have forgotten that we have so many interior images. Like when I look at you, I can see you in, I would think it was blue velvet or corduroy suit that I saw you in. Yes. Okay, right. It was like a great <laughs> navy blue. <laughs> great navy blue. It was because I ran into you and yeah, I was yeah. like, oh, I didn't know you were in New York. Like, I know I'm doing this with you, right? But I can see that. And when I see you on the screen, I see that. 
So there's an image, like the way that we see in the cubists we're talking about, you know, many people are trying to talk about this. You know, filmmakers do it all the time, flashbacks, memory, right? You know, so my the paintings for me are more about how I actually see in my head, how images are collected, they're dispersed, they're lost. To me, it's interesting. We're not printing out images, but my generation, most of us had a couple of images of us as children printed out over the years from one to 10. And so when I think of myself as a baby, that's the image. That's me. That's so, so that is what the image that I have in my head, right? So the paintings are about how images are, are made, how they fall apart, how we remember them in our heads. They're how we see. Some huge percentage of what we see is how we visualize in our head, right? We can imagine images. We can imagine sound. We can even imagine sense. And that idea that we have that capacity to that in, internal capacity, that, you know, in Bouteau, one third of the world is supposed to be, or actually is, is, is interior. And like, you know, they've made that division in Bouteau dance. I mean, it's, it's, you know, neuroscience, it's a huge debate, but we know this, that if I say to you, imagine your high school, like imagine it. There's a picture. I don't know if that's inside, outside, a person. That picture came up and it's yours. I can't see it, but you can. And so that's really what the the, the images are about the, the paintings are about. And so I love the idea that you're creating an image, an image that we enter like a portal. Not all paintings have to be that way. They don't have to do that. But it's sculpture, it's very hard to do that because the sculpture is outside of you and you can poke it. Right. I mean, painting, you can poke too. And I, that's, I, that's part of what I'm thinking about in sculpt, in the painting is like, you know, is it, is it a piece of paper? Is it a trompoy image? Is it a real drift of paint or is it a photograph of paint that's then been printed out? That That's all in there. But fundamentally, I'm really interested in you recognizing them somehow. They're familiar because it's actually the, it, it's playing on the way images get get shot into your head and then they're being constantly um, married with like what you're seeing outside. And of course, the most obvious example of this is when you're sleeping. I mean, your mind and, you know, centuries of people have played on this in different ways is has its entire own life, like some percentage, depending on what a good sleeper you are, but like anywhere from, you know, one tenth to one half of your life is spent in that world of images right? So memory, imagination, dreams. The paintings for me are about taking images that are outside the world and merging them with images that are inside the world, and then also dealing with them actually in a sculptural way. That's came more interesting to me is like, you know, how do you bond an image to a surface? How do you tape it? How does it fall off? It's only that like that three inches on top of the painting. That's interesting to me. And, and I said that print, I think is really important, but I think that collage as an idea is a very important idea right now because we are having to train ourselves to collage, um, you know, all of this different information all the time. So we have to become the curators of, of our own information because we individually, like your collection of information, as you said, like we can, if I want to Google Baroque, it's a, you know, it's a cornucopia of information at the tip of my hands. Whereas before I would go to the library and get the card, go up to the end, decide which book, flip through it, which is beautiful, that experience. But it's not like if I need to know broke, that's just not what I'm going to do. Um, and that we have to figure out as, as individuals how to curate that in our lives. And so the paintings are about that for me. They're about how do we collage together 
experience images, objects on a daily basis all the time. And what do we keep? What do we leave behind? How do we use these things to mark what's important, what's not important? You know, how do we cull? How do we glean? How do we edit? I mean, I mean, you're kind of blowing my mind because this is literally it. And also, you know, I even saw it with the Met last night in the sense that, you know, what 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 sort of narratives are museums giving us as well? Like that's also so skewed in terms of portraiture in the past and the fact that if certain images of certain people do only exist, then actually what is history? You know, what about all those other lives that existed? I think that's extraordinary. And like you said, you know, I have pictures from maybe since I was about 14, you know, every weekend is documented. And that idea of memory as well and me being able to remember what happened and everything. I mean, I, I'm a some meticulous diary maker, so I try and train my memory through writing down what happened right, every single right, day. But right. that's also so fascinating, the right. idea that actually images can exist through words or through an iPhone snap as right. well, or, through a, or right. through a painting or through an experience. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, that's interesting, the idea of training your memory. And that's why your, your book's going to be really interesting. I can't <laughs> wait to read it. But, you know, where those trails go, you know, so the first time I, the first time I heard of, uh, actually, I'd heard her name, but the first time I did deep, research on Gego was uh, when I did the biennial, um, the American Pavilion, uh, Benjamin Buchloe wrote an, uh, an art forum, wrote a review, and he met, he talked about my work in relation to Gego. And so then I did this deep dive into Gego. And the image that they used in, at that time was like this burned into my memory of her work, right? And so that image also is the image that affected my thinking over time. So these kind of like, how do you train your memory? And also, how does your memory how does your memory even if you're not training it how does it how does it fix like how does something become important and it really becomes important over time that's why we know art history like gego only like becomes more important because let's say i don't want to be like me in this case but you know another artist i'm trying to think of another there are so many there's so many younger artists that says gravity is my medium or fragility like a fearlessness about fragility her work becomes relevant only in relation to what happens now. And it's true of anything like economics. If someone was a great economic theorist from 1500, now bubbles to the top because those ideas are relevant, right? So it's those conversations and the things that stick over time that will matter. And so that's what the paintings are about for me. They're about how do we collect? How do they, what, what stays, what doesn't? People say, we, you know, which images stay, which don't. It has this kind of process, this Darwinian process where the images that that work stay and others will fall out over time and the paintings do that they talk about that they talk about how we generate images in our brains in our heads in our memories and how they move us why we keep them why we let others go how we define a full year from one image Totally. And also this idea of when I think about going to your exhibitions when I was like 23 or something and actually that experience of seeing your sculpture, it's completely different. It's almost sort of multi-sensory. You know, I actually, it's not the memory of the image. I don't see images of debris as a, as a flat image. I see it as a culmination. I see myself walking into it. I see, I see myself remembering that, that I think it was a leopard yeah. walking along. I remember it was a, there was a picture of your daughter sleeping. There was a yeah. print stick, you know, all these different elements into yeah. it, uh, which is also yeah. such an interesting thing. I mean, it's also interesting what you said. I remember when I'm younger, like I was talking about how it's really interesting how in the, in this show, the time spent in the, in the show. So people were worried. We don't have stanchions. Nothing's been broken. Nothing at either opening. And it's been open for the 15,000 viewers last weekend. Nothing. But partially because people move very slowly. So the time that people will get through the, is, is exponentially slower than they predicted. And when we did the American Pavilion, it was 
that was really important because of the lines. So they said, this is the average time that people go through the pavilion. And it was like, at a zero, it was like, you know, it was like times 10. It was like, they, you know, people that they move slowly, I think, maybe because they recognize how fragile, I don't know, we'd have to like do it, but this, you know, do it, do it more research on why. But this, I was talking to this musician yesterday, and he said, um, that they did do a study and because um, he had done an installation and it was also time of day. It was like how much time, for, particularly for children, like if you brought a child in the morning, they would stay with the music, but by like five o'clock, they wouldn't. And I hadn't thought of that. And I think also we're the first artists you ever talk to. Like, I remember everything that my teachers told me when I went to grad school. I remember, and I see them, I'll say, I remember when you told me this and they'll look at me like, and no, they're like, great, that's so nice. I have no, I barely remember. I can remember anything I said to you. And now I have that. I have my students come to me and say, it was so important to me when you said this, and I don't remember it. So I do feel like I could never have made the work I'm making. It's true, of course, of any artist. Like, you know, even with this interview, it's different than your first interview, right? So I could never make the work I'm making right now because. It really comes from that being this age. And I think memory and my age, like when you've had 54 years of memories, this calling does become like a very operative part of, it's not just gathering, you know, people say, you know, I'm aging, I'm dying, but it's also you're collecting memories. And then at a certain point you are editing them. You're deciding these are the important ones, you know? So painting is really interesting that way. And does something very, very different than sculpture. And so, but I also love putting them in the same space. And so that the viewer's like, well, what can the painting do that the sculpture can't? But it isn't like a race of what's better or what's worth. It's more about how is that thing operating differently than this thing, but in some ways talking about the exact same thing in a different voice. Totally. And this idea of the emotion as well with memory as well. We, we always remember those kind of visceral experiences. And it's very interesting. You know, you bring up Velazquez earlier in this conversation. You, you know, why is Las Maninas such a great work of art? Clearly, it has this emotional response that it can elicit. And then people remember that in their memory as well. Absolutely. Which is so interesting when we think about greatness and everything. No, absolutely. I mean, and, but that uh, inanimate object can elicit emotion, right, is, a, is such an amazing thing. Yeah. It's extraordinary. Sarah, thank you so much for this. Just incredible. I, I could talk to you all day. You're absolutely amazing. And I would just love to ask you, because this is the Great Women Artists podcast, we always ask our guests, if there was a woman artist who was alive or from history who you'd most like to meet, who would it be? And would you say anything to her? Wow. So I knew you were going to ask this, but I forgot to, <laughs> I just got to think about it. Um, I mean, I feel like I'm going to say someone that many, many women say. So Louise Bourgeois, yeah. I think also her spirit kind of lives around the Chelsea neighborhood. Um, and I love the idea that she really down to her last days was making challenging work, like waking up every day and inhabiting this idea that she would make art till it would be the very last thing she would do would be make a make a work of art and to me if that's the way I die I'll be a very happy artist amazing amazing Sarah Z thank you so much for coming on the podcast today thank you thank you real pleasure
Thank you all so much for listening to this episode with the phenomenal Sarah C. I am just in awe of everything she said and urge all of you in New York City to visit her exhibition at the Guggenheim and for those in London, her upcoming installation in Peckham with Art Angel. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Akaila Carmichael and research assistant was Viva Ruji. As always, if you've enjoyed this episode, please rate, review and subscribe as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to this podcast with me, Katie Hessel.